All right, good morning. Well, we are looking at Daniel chapter 4 today. So you can turn there in your Bibles, your phones, Daniel chapter 4, page 740, if you're using the Bibles here in front of you. Daniel chapter 4. All right, let's begin with prayer. Oh Lord God Almighty, we reach out our hands to you this morning and we ask for a blessing. We don't want to go away till you have blessed us with the food of your word. Strengthen us to hear and let what we hear go deep, reaching into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, Daniel chapter four, we'll begin at verse one, read the whole chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. 
and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord, the King, that you should be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, 
He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I once heard pride compared to a dandelion. You know those weeds with the yellow flowers, the seed globes, they blow everywhere. We'll be pulling them out again soon, if we can. Their roots go deep. Don't even try pulling them up if the soil isn't wet. The top will just snap off. And if any of the root is left, it will just grow back. They can find their way even into the little cracks in the sidewalk. Just like pride doesn't need much of an opening to start shooting up. One of the things about dandelions is they thrive in good soil. And this is also the danger of pride. It actually feeds on goodness and success, even virtue. Ben Franklin surely wasn't the first to notice that as soon as you pay attention to your own humility, you're suddenly in danger of being proud of it. What then is to be done about pride? Nebuchadnezzar has an answer for us. He concludes in verse 37, the last verse of our text here, those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. And we know from how God says history will end, we saw it back in chapter 2 of Daniel, that God will humble all human pride. It's only a question of whether it is now or later. Because ultimately, as Nebuchadnezzar's story makes so clear, God rules everything. Even our reason, our mental ability is in the Lord's hands. Isn't that what we see here with Nebuchadnezzar earlier in Luther's catechism question? We recognize this. He has given me my body, soul, ears, eyes, and all my limbs, my reason, and all my senses and still takes care of them. And when God helps proud people like us see this, 
It's his mercy on display. And so this morning, we want to see God's merciful rule in his humbling of the proud. God's merciful rule in his humbling of the proud. We begin then by observing the anatomy of a proud man before we turn to see God's mercy. So my first point, the anatomy of a proud man. Nebuchadnezzar, he's one of the most fascinating characters in the Bible. This pagan king who, on the one hand, is such an enemy of God's people. Three times he deports people from the land of Israel. The last time he utterly destroys the city of Jerusalem. But on the other hand, he's one of the, he's one of the main characters in the four, first four chapters of this book. Why does God give him such a place in his word? Last week, Jonathan detailed for us his primary role in chapter 3. And, and this chapter, you may have noticed, appears to actually have been written by him. Much of it in the first person. It's some sort of letter that he writes to everybody that he knows. Notice verse 1 says this letter is to all peoples, all nations, and languages. He knows a lot of people. He wants them to know what God has done for him. Right? Verse 2. I want to show what the Most High God has done for me. And then verse 3 tells us ahead of time where he's going to end up, praising God's kingdom. This is a dramatic shift. This is not where Nebuchadnezzar started out. You know that from what you've seen of him in the past couple chapters. You could see this from non-biblical records too. We have a lot of archaeological remains from Nebuchadnezzar's reign. He would commission these clay cylinders. Whenever he would finish a building project, here's a taste of one of them that he wrote after completing a temple. I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the exalted prince, the favorite of the god Marduk, the beloved of the god Nabu, the arbiter, the possessor of wisdom, who reverences their lordship, the untiring governor, who is constantly anxious for the maintenance of the shrines of Babylonia and Borsippa. By thy command, merciful Marduk, may the temple I have built endure for all time, and may I be satisfied with its splendor. Many of the estimated 15 million bricks he used on the city of Babylon were actually stamped with his name and his royal titles. This is a guy who thought he was great. And he was great in a worldly sense. Perfect soil for pride to grow in. Where do we see his pride in our text? Well, first, he's a hearer, not a doer. He's heard lots of things about this God of Daniel's by this point. He knows a good amount of facts. He knows this God can reveal mysteries. That he is, in fact, the God of gods and the Lord of kings. Those are his own words in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, he learns that this God is able to rescue his people in a way no other God can from a fiery furnace. And yet, these truths, they don't have any impact on his life. Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. He has a lot of good theology, 
but it hasn't reached his heart. DeYoung goes on to point out what maybe some of you have heard before. The longest 18 inches in the universe is from our head to our heart. It can take a long time for us to go from knowing something to believing something and acting on it. I mean, look at what Nebuchadnezzar does. He knows that God reveals mysteries. It's been proved to him. But who does he trot out to try to interpret this dream again? The magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. And just like last time, they can't do anything for him. Why does he go back to them? He, he even gives them the dream this time, verse 7. And honestly, it's not even that hard of a dream to interpret. Uh, the angel in the dream basically interprets everything for him. He even tells him the point of the whole event in verse 17. So everybody will know who's really in charge. The only thing he doesn't say is who the tree is but we all know who the tree is it's the guy with his name stamped on all the bricks in the room who else it's pretty straightforward but nobody wants to share bad news with a proud man see here's the missing piece of theology for prideful people God is the God of me that's what Nebuchadnezzar didn't have figured out yet. It was all just head stuff. Oh yeah, God is the God of gods. But as soon as he was comfy, at ease in his house and prospering, he, he, he was really the one in charge. God was just out there and up there somewhere. Maybe that piece of theology is missing for you too. You're fine with the theoretical side of Christianity. You don't mind God being God as long as he doesn't challenge your rule. There will always be aspects of Christianity that people like. What do you do when you come up against something you don't like? That's when we figure out who's actually in charge. Whether what's up here made it down here to your heart. Well, the second place we see Nebuchadnezzar's pride, he doesn't hear God's warning. He doesn't hear God's warning, right? Because when, when Daniel finally comes in and interprets this dream for him, he also tells him to respond to the warning. He says in verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. And there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. There's a chance for Nebuchadnezzar here. Daniel says, perhaps, right? Maybe we're reminded of the book of Jonah when the prophet Jonah tells the people of Nineveh they're about to be destroyed. Their king takes the warning seriously and proclaims, let everyone turn from his evil way. Who knows? God may turn and relent. In fact, God promises he's willing to do this. Jeremiah 18, 78. If, if at any time I declare concerning a nation that I will destroy it, and if that nation turns from its evil, I will relent, the Lord says. King Ahab did this. 1 Kings 21. He was an evil dude. I won't rehearse all his 
story, all his problems, but he got a warning, and he sort of repented. It wasn't a very impressive repentance, but God relented. Nebuchadnezzar gets a warning here, but the silence after Daniel pleads with him in verse 27 is telling. Twelve months he gets but he's moved on from that scary dream by then. He's up on his palace roof in verse 30, looking down on his works, me, me, my, I, mine. The proud person does not hear God's warnings no matter how they come. Watch out. Don't let your conscience get hardened. Don't let your heart be blinded by pride. Sometimes the Lord uses people in our lives with courage like Daniel who love us and are willing to say hard things. Sometimes he uses some dramatic failure in the life of someone else. We see someone destroy their family with their sin and we realize we're actually on the same road. Sometimes something vile comes out of us that just shocks us. Anger. A vicious, selfish comment, a lie. Don't let those moments slide past. Don't pat yourself on the back and justify it away. The Lord has sent you a warning. Listen. We see finally in Nebuchadnezzar that pride takes the glory for what God has done. So in verse 30, and Nebuchadnezzar looks out on the city of Babylon. He proclaims that this is all for the glory of my majesty. And, of course, his vision is so small. Daniel told him back in chapter 2, all that you have was given into your hand by God. But he forgot it, or it was just good theology that never made the trip to his heart. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive? Do not forget where your blessings came from because pride will quickly take root in all your hard work. And if your work becomes all about you, it becomes meaningless because this world is not about your kingdom. That's what the book of Daniel is all about. The kingdoms of men will be destroyed and never found again. And the kingdom of God will grow and become the final reality. This is why the psalmist writes, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Nebuchadnezzar's achievements are great, but meaningless when done for himself. And of course, this is where his life becomes such a message of hope for us. Because God could have just struck him down for his pride. He did that with other kings. Think of Herod Agrippa. We saw him in our series in Acts, chapter 12, verse 22. The people are shouting, The voice of a God and not a man! And immediately the angel of the Lord strikes him down because he did not give God the glory. That was God's justice. It was right. It was fair. But with Nebuchadnezzar, God chooses to show us his mercy. And so we turn to my second point, the rule of a merciful God. When I was in high school, I played the role of the beast in the musical Beauty and the Beast. 
And one day, my director took me to an empty classroom and said, I want you to go in there and just act like a beast for the next couple of hours till lunchtime. Think like a beast. Hold your arms and your shoulders like a beast. Move like a beast. Let the saliva run out of your mouth like a beast. Growl like a beast. Throw chairs, knock over tables like a beast. My director was pretty legit about this stuff. So I went in there, I got to work, and after I'd been going at it for a while, throwing things around, growling and pacing, the door suddenly opened, and in walks the school janitor. <laughs> he kind of just looked at me. I was probably perched on a table scowling or something. And he chuckled nervously, and he walked out. Nobody wants to be around someone who's acting like a beast. It's unnerving. It's dangerous. This is what happens with Nebuchadnezzar. He starts acting like an animal, and nobody wants to be around him. And there's a real psychological name for this problem. Lycanthropy is when people think they're a dog. Boanthropy, when they think they're a cow. We have documented cases of these disorders. But the reality of what we're seeing here with Nebuchadnezzar is he just becomes outwardly what he already is inwardly. The image of God that makes man unique from beasts is finally just stripped away from him. He's been resisting it anyways. His, his beastliness has been popping out, right, in his unrealistic demands, his vicious death sentences, his thirst for control, his blind pride. And we can relate, Psalm 73, when my soul was embittered, I was like a beast towards you, O God. You ever find yourself like me, growling and throwing chairs, and then someone walks into the room and they think, I don't want to be around this person. Here is what is so hopeful about this story for you and I. God does not chuckle nervously and back out of the room. This is all so intentional and merciful, what he's doing here with Nebuchadnezzar. You know, one of the patterns we can see in every chapter of Daniel so far, there's one, a problem, two, a test, and three, a promotion. It happens in each of the first three chapters, and it happens here. Same pattern, but there's a massive difference in chapter four because it's not Daniel and or his friends who have the problem. It's Nebuchadnezzar. And while Daniel and his friends, they always pass the test. Nebuchadnezzar does not. He fails the test. He gets turned into a beast. And he has to learn from his failure. Most of us, probably a lot more like Nebuchadnezzar than Daniel. In need of second chances, desperate for mercy, And so just notice with me briefly how God shows himself to be merciful. He shows himself so powerful, right? He rules the kingdom of men. It's sent over and over again. Nebuchadnezzar says at the end, no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? But this God who rules, 
is merciful. First, he sends he sends his messengers. He sends his messengers. This is an act of God's mercy. We could trace this throughout the whole Bible. But just in Nebuchadnezzar's life, he sent these brilliant young men from the land of Israel. He sent two dreams, not just one, but two. And faithful, compassionate Daniel to interpret them. And just notice quickly the kindness of Daniel here. He is dismayed by this dream. And he says to Nebuchadnezzar, may this dream be for those who hate you and for your enemies. Why is he dismayed? This guy just threw his friends into a burning furnace. Lest you forget what happened last chapter. Shouldn't he be like, ooh, you got it coming now, Neb. No, he genuinely cares for this beastly man, right? Let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins, he says. Daniel really, he is confronting his king right here. Many in the world would claim it's not loving at all to confront people and call them to repentance. It's traumatic. But Daniel's example here makes it clear. There is actually nothing so gracious the worst thing that can happen to us is to be left at ease in our sin. Do you recognize the Lord's mercy in the messengers that you have received in your life who've lovingly warned you? This is not something you deserve. You don't get to demand one phone call from the Lord. He wrote his law on your hearts. You do not have the right for even one messenger from him. Just one is gracious. And he sends many. He sent his own son after all his other messengers had been killed. The second place we see God's mercy here, he disciplines those he loves. He disciplines those he loves. Now, Everybody wants to know whether Nebuchadnezzar was truly converted or not. And I'm not going to give you a direct answer because I want you to argue about it over lunch. But I will just throw out this reminder that the Bible teaches in Proverbs 3.12 that God disciplines those he loves. And the writer of Hebrews chapter 12 verses 3 to 10, he actually cites from these verses to remind us that discipline is a sign of true sonship. So the question then for us is, with Nebuchadnezzar, was this judgment or discipline? And the answer just seems so clear in verse 34 when he finally takes his eyes off the world, off all his human works, and lifts them to heaven, and reason comes back to him. It's only when we look up to God that we can see the world truly. That is true sanity. And he doesn't shake his fist at God. You did this to me. No. He blesses the Lord. I think this is the reaction of a true child. Maybe not in the middle of discipline, 
But when our reason returns, our eyes clear, and we see how merciful the Lord was because the stump deserved to be ripped entirely out of the field, ground up and scattered to the wind, but it was left so that after a full period of time, it might regrow for God's glory. God's discipline is a mercy. This church's discipline should you fall under it, is a mercy. But if you never respond to God's discipline, well then, it's only judgment. Thirdly and finally, we see the Lord's merciful rule in this offer of hope to his exiles. He gives hope to his exiles. You see, Nebuchadnezzar, he's not the only tree that's been cut down. And the exiles of Israel who read this letter from Nebuchadnezzar, he sends out to everybody, they know it. Isaiah refers to Israel as a stump that has been cut down through the exile of its people, through the destruction of the land. But he also says that the holy seed is the stump. In other words, the Lord promises through Isaiah to regrow his people from that stump. And here in their land of exile, they see the Lord doing just this with a pagan king. Cutting him down and humbling him in order to exalt him. There's hope for them too. There's hope for you. Maybe you have felt like a tree that's just been cut down, lying out there in the field, wet with the dew of the morning, living like a beast. There's hope for you in the story of Nebuchadnezzar, the story of Israel. There is mercy to be had if you hear the warning and humble yourself by looking up to God, away from the works of the earth. How is this mercy made possible? through the greatest humbling of all, through the destruction of the tree of life himself, the one who was there in the beginning, who created all things, through whom all things are sustained, who rightfully could look down upon the earth and say, were not these things made for the glory of my majesty? He willingly left the glories of heaven to take on human flesh. That is at least as far a drop as Nebuchadnezzar took from king to beast. But Christ went lower still because he descended into death itself to pay the penalty for our pride and give us his righteous life so that we ourselves might be grafted into the tree of life to claim this gift let go of your pride and call upon his name Jesus save me I need your mercy and if the mercy of God is clear to you this morning in the humiliation, the exaltation of Jesus Christ, then praise and extol the King of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble.
Let's pray. O Lord God, we see in the life of Nebuchadnezzar that you rule all things, the most powerful man in the known world, but his reason was not his own. He took it away to humble him. But Lord, we also see in your mercy, your undeserved grace to him. And we know how needy we are, so we ask for mercy as well. This mercy, we know it comes at great expense. Jesus obtained it for us through his own humiliation, so that all those who trust in him might also be exalted with him. So this morning, O Lord, we humble ourselves. We lift our eyes to you that we might have Christ. And we thank you for giving him to us through this meal that we're about to take. In Jesus' name.